and welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Daryl Grove and I'm joined by a man who loves a pool assist. His name <laughs> is Taylor Rockwell. Hello. Hello. I do love a pool assist. Uh, pool assist excuse me. I love it even more when I'm watching in studio with Daryl Grove because... You are so optimistic about Christian Pulisic that every time he's on the ball, I, I genuinely think you think there's a chance he's going to go on a run and score a goal or create an assist. So I mean, every he time he's on the ball, you're like, he's got it. He's got the ball. <laughs> and then it ended up working. So I guess your faith was restored. So or for repaid, the, rather. For those who don't know, we're recording this. Um, it's not going to be a full match review, but we're recording just after. It is definitely not going to be a full match <laughs> review. Ajax versus Chelsea. Uh-huh. Chelsea won 1-0. This is true. We did turn it on. I was thinking, all right, Pulisic didn't start. This feels like roughly the time he might be coming on. <laughs> Um, I'm on a roll today, I think. Yep. I should go to the casino. Mm-hmm. I turned the TV on, and it literally Pulisic was uh, doing his paperwork, getting was, ready to yeah, sub in. Like adjusting right? a shin guard, yeah. kind of stretching, doing the final little stretches, waiting yep. to be subbed on. Yeah, you timed so, it very well. Roughly 65th minute, Pulisic came on, played left wing, mm-hmm. had a couple of runs, was somewhat involved, and then got the assist. Yeah, he burnt some hapless right back. <laughs> some weird Dutch right back. Yeah. No, so it was Pulisic up against Serginho Dest, a mm-hmm. couple of stepovers, and he, he kind of got Dest to open his legs up, right? And mm-hmm. then fired the ball back across the uh, the, the corridor of uncertainty, mm-hmm. kind of, across six yard box. Alonso opened his legs, let it run through. He did. And then Michy Batshuayi tried to blast it over the bar, mm-hmm. but somehow got it just under the bar. <laughs> 1-0 Chelsea. Uh, and it was... A run and ball that Pulisic had hit like moments before. That time it obviously did not come off because yeah. the score finished 1-0. One, one but here, I think it's the deception from Alonso that really throws it off and causes some problems. But still, it's a great driving run and a great ball in. He yeah. finds it, his teammate. His teammate is just smart enough to know not to touch it. And then yep. the other teammate definitely touches it because <laughs> Batshuayi hits that ball hard. And here's why I think I'm so into the mm-hmm. Pulisist and kind of excited by it is... Um, a lot of people were really freaked out about Pulisic's lack of playing time. I think they? I, they really I didn't were. see the several thousand stories written about it. Well, a lot of just US, and we didn't talk about it three. A lot of US show. soccer fans are just a bit panicky. Mm-hmm. I think um, that will be a theme. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say when we answer some of the uh, questions about the US men's national team, based on the four hundred questions we got. Yeah, I'd say so. But we both on this show kind of kept the faith in terms of let's just see what happens. It's a long season, right? Mm-hmm. And I think. We're beginning to see Pulisic coming off the bench having an impact that kind of justifies what Lampard did with him at the start mm-hmm. of the season. Yeah, I think there were moments... It's going to be okay is what I'm saying. It is. I think there were moments in some of the weekend reviews when Ryan and I were a little bit more negative because okay. it was in that stretch of like, he's I not take, even on the bench today. Well, I take no blame for what happens on Mondays when I'm not That's here. fair. That's fair. But I think when it was like... I'm not, this sounds very hipster. But I think it was slightly before people had really started to worry about Pulisic's lack of playing time. That yeah. said, I think like the first time he didn't start a game, people were already concerned. Yeah. But I think once we started to hear more quotes from Lampard about where he was and why he wasn't starting, yeah. that's when I was more of more mind of the mind of like, yeah, it's okay. He's got to develop and get to that point. This is also making me trust Frank Lampard. Like when he says things like... I can't like, believe how, how much I trust Frank Lampard at this point as a coach, at least. I, and I, I mean his literal words. Like mm-hmm. when he says things like, hey, he's one of a number of young players, yeah. he's settling in, um, he'll get his chance, all that kind of stuff. Some coaches will say that and then you never see the player again. And you're like, you, I don't think the door really was always open. <laughs> <laughs> I think you locked that door. The door is always open for him to go on loan and yeah. not play for us again this season. But I really, I believe Lampard because the evidence is that mm-hmm. he meant what he said, yeah. right? And Pulisic... Uh, 
will and has had his chance. Yeah. Been given his chance. I said on the weekend review that, like, I still don't really want to give Chelsea full credit for what they're doing because, again, they've been forced to do it. Yeah. yeah. He is probably, like, uh, not Pulisic, but Lampard is one of the few things that I'm like, yeah, he's doing a good job. Yeah. He has found a way to make the squad work. He, at the same time, has essentially sat their most, or like, most expensive transfer of the last couple windows because he wasn't wasn't yet ready. And now it seems like he's come in and kind of knows what's expected of him, is able to perform. I said on the weekend review, I wasn't sure if he could play on the left wing. Here he comes in, subs in for William on the left wing, looks just fine. So uh, I'm excited for uh, what's to come, certainly from Christian Pulisic, and especially when that relates to the national team. Are we worried about Serginho Dest? I know it's a very small sample, just seeing him get burned. No, because that's always been his vulnerability. He has always been vulnerable 1v1. That has been his like weakness from... Like when we first saw him with U.S. Youth National Team, definitely better going forward than defending. Certainly, right? I mean, this is re- why I, I thought for his U.S. National Team debut he should have played on the wing, yeah. not at fullback. I mean, you made, you made that argument for him at Ajax as well, right? That like maybe we should see Des play, played further forward. Yeah, yeah, but I don't mind seeing it. Yeah. I, I don't. Well, I don't, to be honest, for Ajax, whatever he can get in the team, I'm happy. He's right. in goal. But I, I do think 1v1 defending is his number one liability vulnerability right now. And mm-hmm. yeah, again, Pulisic kind of showcased that. Yeah. And I guess this is this is the thing with young fullbacks, right? I remember Ashley Cole as a youngster. There was a lot of talk about that. Like, Ashley Cole was never young. He was always 27. <laughs> he, no, I remember a time when Ashley Cole was an 18-year-old left back for Arsenal. And everyone was talking about, oh, he's good going forward, but he's vulnerable defensively. And just teenagers yeah. are, you know what I mean? And then he just learned his game, learned his game. He ended up being just a very good defensive left back who didn't get forward that much because mm-hmm. he was 37. You know what I'm saying? I, I do know what you're saying. It comes I with age. Would add that Paolo Maldini was born knowing how to defend properly, and yeah. never, and even he didn't even he walked out. He he did not slide uh, when he was born. He walked he out of the then, womb. You know not to slide. Tackle. Took up the correct position. Exactly. You don't go to ground like straight out of the womb. Come on. <laughs> All right. Shall we get to? He also had that those flowing locks from birth. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> shall we get to today's questions? Let's do it. It's a listener question special. Mm-hmm. Um, I put it out on Twitter that we wanted US men's national team questions because I felt like there were a lot of topics after the Canada game mm-hmm. that we kind of didn't get into, including one big one. Mm-hmm. And we've got all those questions to answer. We certainly do. First question comes from a gentleman by the name of Adam Bells. Never heard of him. That sounds familiar. I've heard of Zleb Mata, but never <laughs> Adam Bells. <laughs> so if you don't know, Adam Bells is one of the co-hosts of the Scuffed mm-hmm. podcast at Podcast Taylor and I both enjoy and apparently both listen to this morning because we both tweeted about it. This is true. <laughs> we don't I, coordinate. We just seem to consume the same media. And I didn't really adequately like, convey this, but why I wrote like, haha, I just finished listening to this is because I had literally just hit like stop on it. And then I saw your tweet come through. I was like, oh, <laughs> yeah, I, we're really that much linked up. Good stuff. <laughs> Another good thing I like about Scuffed, this isn't just going to be a Scuffed ad. Mm-hmm. We're going to get to Adam's question. Yeah, we'll see. Um, Greg Velasquez, who's another co-host, uh, he puts together like a, a weekend review mm-hmm. and a weekend preview like as, as a little... Uh, I don't know what you call it, like mm-hmm. a graphic. Yeah. <laughs> his recent his recent graphic for Tyler Adams at RB Leipzig, the comment with the review was just need a win here, physio. <laughs> Which is true. And we did get that. He returned to training. He was yeah. in the match day squad for Leipzig today in their Champions League game. We're recording this Wednesday, obviously. Uh, but we expect maybe he'll be in the squad on Sunday, hopefully, maybe possibly. Crossing my fingers and toes. Let's do it. All right, question from Adam Bells, mm-hmm. which also came from uh, Beamer Jenkins and a few other people asked this same question. Because yeah. I kind of hinted that I wanted this question. Do you think Greg Berhalter should be fired? Mm-hmm. If not, I see you, Bells, anticipating my answer. Um, what would have to happen in the next international window to get you into the Berhalter out mm-hmm. camp? Okay. All right, I've got my answer. I'd like to know your answer, Mr. Rockwell. Sure. Uh, my answer is after genuinely more deliberation than I thought, no, not right now. Not right now? Mm-mm. Okay, why not? Because... 
there are two reasons. The first is I do think it's similar to like Oleg under Solskjaer at Man United. Does firing him make us better right now? I don't know uh, because I think there are lots of other problems. I do think he's gotten some of his selections and decisions wrong. So mm-hmm. maybe it does make more sense at this point. Except that when you look at it in a vacuum, which we don't, don't necessarily have to do, but I'm going to try to do for purposes of this conversation, looking at just Greg Berhalter as a coach from when he took over, not the fallout from Kuva, not how long it took, not his relationship to Jay Berhalter. That's all fair reason for, for criticism. But for the purposes of this question, if you put it in a vacuum, starts off strong. We make it the Gold Cup final. We get blown out by Mexico. We have some bad losses, but we lost one nil to Mexico. I'm talking about the the three nil oh, yeah, destruction, yeah. Uh, and then like the bad loss to Jamaica before the Gold Cup. But if you look at those as like experimental, he's been there less than a year. He still hasn't had a lot of his big players come in. He still hasn't had Tyler Adams. Josie Altidore has been absent for most of this. John Brooks. If you look at those results and combine them all together, it is not as bad as it feels. Is it bad? Yes, I think the situation right now is very very bad. It is not quite as bad as where I thought it was. That said, it's still simultaneously not as good as I hoped it would be. All right. So I'm going to give my answer before mm-hmm. we move on to the next part. Um, I, I don't think Berhalter should be fired right now for basically all the reasons you just laid out. In addition, I would say what I said after the Panama game in the mm-hmm. Gold Cup. Do you remember we had, that, I, we had like a long discussion on this podcast about implementing this new style of play, this positional play, takes time and you've got to have patience and at least let it play out mm-hmm. right you've got to so we can't fire him after one bad result in the CONCACAF Nations League right you've got to at least let the entire CONCACAF Nations League play out and maybe to answer the second part of the question if we end up not winning our group mm-hmm. then I think you can seriously look at okay maybe this guy needs to go yep. but right now you've got to give him the time to see if he can make the little tweaks make the little changes give him time with the players to see if this playing style can be a thing that the US men's national team under Greg Berhalter can accomplish right right? don't pull the trigger too early no right and I double down on saying I understand that fans are frustrated with the US Soccer Federation as a whole for many many reasons which we'll probably address when we get Mm -hmm. to some questions later on don't make Greg Berhalter the scapegoat or the focus of all your anger about US Soccer because firing him will not fix the rest of U.S. soccer. No. You know what I'm saying? So you might as well support the team and want the team to do well and hope that the Berhalter system works out and that we, we have success under Berhalter. Mm-hmm. That said, though, like I do think there's an argument to be made for if the Berhalter system continues not to work, which yeah. I would say it has not worked, at least not as well as he thought it would, at least Again, not Especially as well as against like. Canada, right? Yeah. We laid out all our concerns about what wasn't working against Canada yeah. in that review show if you want to go back and hear them. Yeah, and so I think, like speaking of Canada, to your point, I think we've got this next break. We've got Canada at home, Cuba away. And I think sort of regardless of results, which is a point I believe Adam and uh, Greg made on their most recent episode – if we see the same stuff again and it, and we just don't see that progression, that is where I do feel like you got to start maybe thinking about it a bit more. I would say that's probably where, for me, I would be okay with him going. So if, what would have to happen in the next international window to get mm-hmm. you in the Berhalter out camp? I think is it a loss to Canada? I think it's... Yes. Or a draw? But, but where more, we don't win the group? Like, results aside, okay. I think what it is for me is, like, if it's the same personnel as we've been seeing, where it's 15 of the 23, 16 of the 23, 14 of the 23, same players. If it's the same personnel, the same tactics, so you've got, like, a two-man midfield that's not supposed to be a two-man midfield, but sort of is, and it gets overwhelmed. The 4 4 2 meh. And thus you <laughs> see that, exactly, the accordion press is, I think, yeah, what, yeah. We've, uh, what was suggested on Twitter and uh-huh. what we're now stealing and making our own. <laughs> if we see all that stuff, then it's the same problems, and it 
means there hasn't been an evolution. We're not building towards anything. Especially if Canada do the same sort of box mm-hmm. midfield that's designed to like prevent us yeah. playing through it. Um, and to exploit our defensive shape weakness. And Behelter literally sends out the same shape, same system, same personnel, and gets the same result yeah. or similar. Then, yeah, for me, that's just that's, that's it for me. I'll be, okay, this guy needs to go because he hasn't adjusted at all. He was shown what the problems were in this last game. Now we're faced with the same opponent at home. If we do the same thing and have the same problems, that sets off all the alarm bells yeah. for me. Yeah, yeah I, I agree. Then the, the last sort of outlier is like even if the U.S. say they like kind of play a defensive game, it's not that exciting, but they beat Canada 1-0, 2-0. They beat Cuba because that's what we would expect. If you start to hear locker room uh, frustration, if mm-hmm. that boils over and you start to hear players declining call-ups or talking openly about how they don't want to be here. With this in mind, I did go back and look at that Yedlin quote one more time. I now, not that I didn't already, but I definitely agree with you. that yeah. I, Because first of all, it's coming from sources close to him in North America saying like, oh, he's probably excited to go back. Oh, look forward to it. It's like, yeah, yeah okay. That's not that big of a deal. It has probably not been the most fun to play for the national team right now. But if we start hearing like players are dissatisfied with Burhalter, they don't understand what's being asked of them, they don't see progression. This they disagree dis- with the system. That's the thing mm-hmm. I haven't heard. Yeah. And I, I'm still optimistic that the players are bought into it and at least trying to execute it. Right? And, and if, you st- if they stop trying, I agree with you, that would be when we have to really worry about it. And that's a major reason why I am not in the fire Burhalter camp. That really is one of the biggest ones, is that so often... We, media, whomever, fans, don't know what's going on behind the scenes. And there is a chance, I'm not saying it's likely, but I'm saying there is a chance that those players are all on board and they all mm-hmm. like what's being asked of them and they're trying to do it and it's taking some time and they're a little bit confused, but everybody loves Burhalter in the system. And if that's the case, then there's no sort of rancor in the locker room. There's no real negativity in the locker room aside from the results. So that's fine. But if it's the other side of like, no, everybody hates it and everyone's selling and people like like dread showing up and are pulling right and gigs and being like, oh, my, my heel hurts. I can't play this weekend. Yeah. Then that is the other aspect of it that could really, really make me think it's time for him to go. And I would double down on the idea that, yeah, the Canada result was a horrible result, mm-hmm. horrible performance, horrible tactical and selection showing from Bearhalter. If we beat Canada in Orlando and then beat Cuba, quote unquote, away, um, we win the Nations League group and it's kind of just one bad result um, in a successful Nations League campaign, right? Yes. So there's still a chance to turn this around. And I don't think you should fire someone midway through um, a very short tournament like this. And they should be given the chance to complete mm-hmm. the entire tournament and see where we're at. Yep. Yeah? I agree. Okay. You ready for the next question? Yeah, I'll, I'll ask this one for you, buddy. All right. Kaz Didrick uh, asks, if Berhalter is fired, who would be your ideal... Uh, realistic in parentheses. Can that be the same thing? Ideal realistic? I guess so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, choice to replace him. Uh, Randy Morgan and several others asked this question as well. So Bielsa um, is busy, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, I think the ideal semi-realistic option would be Bob Bradley. Yeah. I think Bob Bradley was an excellent coach when he was U.S. men's national team coach. I think, honestly, you can go back in the Total Soccer Show archives. I would have argued against him being fired Mm -hmm. in 2011 because I liked his men's national team. I think that Bob Bradley of 2019 is a much more, even more advanced coach than 2011. He's gone and coached, um, he's coached Egypt, he's coached in France, he's coached in England, Mm -hmm. he's coached in Norway, he's coached in uh, two really successful seasons Mm -hmm. so far in Major League Soccer. And I think his style of play is almost as aesthetically pleasing as Berhalter wants it to be, but more realistic yeah. and with a much better defensive game plan based on what I see from LAFC. I, I agree entirely. And that, and that is the answer 
I would not even say with an opinion. That is the answer for a realistic. He might not actually take the job. I feel like there's there a chance because he yeah. was uh, reportedly very not happy that he was let go in favor of Jurgen Klinsmann. Yeah. Uh, so he mentioned that not so long ago, yes. right? He's always talked about how yeah, it wasn't my decision to, mm-hmm. to leave U.S. Soccer in 2011. So I'm not entirely confident that he would actually take the position if offered to him. I'm guessing he would want a lot of money and maybe a lot of freedom as well. Maybe yeah. he even wants to be technical director or fill that the vacant GM position right now or men's GM position right now. <laughs> um, but I also think the answer is. Bob Bradley because so many of the other possible candidates or at least possibilities in my mind would mean like drastic change one way or the other and I think Bob Bradley has the ability the background with the U.S. national team to know how how to manage a national team and specifically the U.S. but then also has like the tactical nuance to change things up that have sort of been working with Burhalter and then adjust the things that have not whereas like for a moment I really did consider Big Sam as an answer of like if you need a person to come in mm -hmm, or David (laughs) Moyes like if you need someone to come in organize the defense play counterattacking soccer drink pints of wine be physical fight for everything because that is a big thing that I think has been missing is we we just the lack of fight against Canada is something that I really expect yeah, yeah. in the United States. I expect the fight and to not see it was telling and I feel like those two would get it back but it also means you're kind of changing completely and going back to completely counterattacking, sitting deep soccer. A lot of other coaches would come in and I feel like face some of the same issues Burhalter has. Bradley, I feel like, has the familiarity with the players, with the system, with the national team and how to manage at that level that it all kind of ticks. He also has a reputation for establishing a really positive culture yep. around a team and you can see it at LAFC mm-hmm. right now. Um, so, yeah, I, for me, Bob Bradley would be the choice. Mm-hmm. If he said no, mm-hmm. right, if he's like, hey, no, I'm committed to LFC, I'm building something here, um, I wouldn't be against Tab Ramos. Okay. Yeah. I my, think my, just because he's like he's almost plug and play. Like mm-hmm. if we were desperate and we just wanted something that went uh, back to basics tactically, like we know what Tab Ramos does. It's not that complicated. Right. But all the players know it. I think it would be like a nice reset in terms of, all right, this is what we're doing. It's 4-3-3. Uh, quick transitions here we go mm-hmm. you know I mean? and you've all done, some of you have done it for me before yeah I mean and that, and that is true because he has had Hello some, again, of, Tyler. some of these faces exactly <laughs> my, my hesitation there not even my one hesitation but my main hesitation there is that you say like his tactics are pretty basic I would say that's a positive description of his tactics sometimes of like 4-3-3 yeah. three, three, attack down the wings be physical and fast those like I, I don't every U20 tournament has ended with hey we did really well to get to the quarterfinals yeah. but I wish Tab Ramos had done this yeah there's not a lot of adjustment yeah. there's not a lot of like oh okay they're overriding us here or overwhelming us here we've got to add this person instead it's a lot yeah. more like for like and that's been my main criticism of him at but they've level, also ended at the quarterfinals stage. there's also that so there's that and right? they made those tournaments yes, <laughs> yes. Um, people may be wondering why we haven't mentioned Jesse Marsh mm-hmm. do you have a reason why you didn't list Jesse Marsh as an ideal realistic choice to uh, to replace Berhalter because I don't think you would take it I think mm. right now I think where he is with Salzburg it seems very likely that Julian Nagelsmann with Leipzig will get another bigger job and then that Leipzig, maybe in Bavaria yeah maybe in Bavaria <laughs> maybe somewhere else because I do think he's a young exciting coach yeah and then there's going to be a vac- vacancy at Leipzig I honestly think it's a planned vacancy and yeah. then I think it's planned that Jesse Marsh will take over I think he's on a Red Bull quest yes. he's on a Red Bull path that's mm-hmm. been laid out for him and I think if you if US soccer offered Jesse Marsh the job he might mm-hmm. take it, and I think it would be a terrible thing for his career because, like you said, everything's kind of set up for him to maybe be Leipzig coach mm-hmm. in a year, two years, three years. Yep. Um, and if we if we made him abandon that path, who knows if there's a path back to Europe. Yeah. So it would be a terrible thing for Marsh's career. It might be better to leave him for five years or a decade mm-hmm. and then have Jesse Marsh as a future U.S. men's national team coach. Yeah, because yeah. I do also still sort of, to some extent, subscribe to the idea that, like, 
managers become national team managers later on. That mm-hmm. was always the story with Jose Mourinho. Like, even when England, when there was the vacancy in England and everybody thought, like, oh, it's the dream job. Really, for him, I think Portugal, maybe England, national teams are the dream job. And that's the thing he wants to do later on in life. He wants yeah. to have success at club level because I do think it's much more demanding and much more rigorous. And then you move on to national teams later on. There you go. I think we've answered that question. The only other wrinkle right, I had yes. was if, say, the U-17s go super far in this upcoming World Cup, maybe we have a, a cup of coffee with Rafael Vicky and see how he's <laughs> feeling about things because he is, he's what managed in Switzerland, I think it was, yeah. at senior level, like no big, not a major club or anything like that. But with the U-17s, has already come in and kind of gotten the team playing a more proactive, exciting style. And if he can continue to do that and make it, look, make it work, then maybe why not? Counterpoint, let's see how the U17 World Cup That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. Like, depending on how it goes, if it goes, that's what, that was my. It was, okay. That was All my right. initial statement. Okay, sorry, I missed the first part. If they go very deep in the U17 World yeah. Cup, potentially even winning it, then you have a cup of coffee with Rafael Vicky. Okay. Trying Spe- try to discredit my points. <laughs> Speaking of how the U17 World Cup, mm-hmm. our next sponsor is a place that can help you watch said <laughs> U17 World Cup. I love, I love whenever we get near the sponsor, and you can tell that Daryl is slowing down to get the copy in front of him before he announces who the sponsor is. How dare you? I'm very fast at pressing the icon. Uh-huh. <laughs> Today's show is sponsored by Fubo He's TV. He's got it in front of him now. Okay. Fubo TV. I've got it in front of me mm-hmm. when I sit and watch TV at home. That's true. Fubo TV is my TV provider because they are a soccer-first TV provider. They are indeed. And they're a soccer-first TV provider that le- lets you watch soccer everywhere because they're super portable. So Daryl says he watches it at home. But say he was coming into the office, he could watch it on his phone on the way to the bus. Then he could yep. put the laptop or the that. iPad do a hotspot. He could watch on the iPad on the I've bus here. Then you could get off again back on your phone to the office, and then it's on the office TV here or on it the laptop is. or wherever you want to watch it. You can watch it anywhere. That's how we watched um, Ajax Chelsea, right? It is indeed. It is. Um, all right. Also, Fubo have all kinds of soccer, like the sort of soccer that if you're a bit of a soccer hipster, I think Fubo's a channel for you. Mm-hmm. Like last night, I was clicking around, just happened to find Copa Libertadores semi final. Boca hosting River, 2 0 down. Is that a big game, those two? It was. It was huge. It was Historical relationship? It was really dramatic and exciting. Boca scored in, I think, the 80th mm-hmm. minute and then like went at it, went at it. River held on. It was a really um, exciting, um, an exciting thing that I didn't think I would be watching. All right. All right? And, and they do, as you said, they do have those options. So if you wanted to watch, say, Besiktas Galatasaray this weekend, who doesn't want to watch 12th versus 6th in the Turkish Super League? It's the Istanbul Derby, though. It right? is, though. It and is. the possible Tyler Boyd involvement? That could be cool. Yeah. Uh, that one's on B in 6. Like, B- Sports Six, yes. Oh wow! So it's a way to like watch watch that channel on your TV when you otherwise would probably have to watch it on your computer or yeah. another streaming device. But because Fubo has the the TV uh, app, yep. you could do it that way. I got a better one for you. What else you got? Slovan Bratislava versus Wolverhampton Wanderers. You said better Thursday on Galavision. Did you Be- need to say wildly inferior? Better for me. Okay, that better for me. Sense. So Bratislava versus Wolves on Galavision mm-hmm. on Thursday. I'll be watching that. And then there's a big one Saturday morning, right, Taylor? Uh, what the Shock of E. Dortmund? Yes. Yes. There's 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 a lot on this weekend, most of which are on Sunday. But you do have also, I think the thing that led us into this was, I believe pretty much every single, if not every single U17 World Cup game is yes. available on FUBO. So, for example, USV Senegal, mm-hmm. the US's first game in the U- U17 World Cup. It's this Sunday on Fox Sports 1 and Telemundo. 
Um, it's on Richmond Telemundo. Mm-hmm. I believe it's on your local Telemundo <laughs> as well. Mm-hmm. Fox Sports 1 and Telemundo, US versus Senegal. Watch Gio Reyna dribbling from the left wing. And it will definitely be available on Fubo, as we've already discussed. Uh, or at least I hope it will be. Otherwise, we're liars. <laughs> uh, so, Daryl, if people want to uh, get the Fubo app, learn more about Fubo, what can they do? If you go to FuboTV.com slash TSS, mm. FuboTV.com slash TSS, you can get $10 off your first three months of Fubo. $10 off your first three months of Fubo. Go via FuboTV.com slash TSS. That way they know that we sent you. That way they know that we sent you. Indeed. <laughs> So thank you very much to Fubo for sponsoring today's episode. Some more questions, Mr. Grove? I want to talk more about Slovan Bratislava versus Wolves. Hard pass. <laughs> All right. Next question comes from Joel Andron. Joel Andron says, Daryl said that there's a little overreaction to one bad performance from the U.S. men's national team. So when I was talking about the Canada game, I think on a recent show I said, we're, some people are overreacting mm-hmm. to this. Um, my question is, what was a good performance under Bearhalter? And I think... The tone that Joel has adopted is that maybe there was no good performance under Bearhalter. Isn't that the subtext here? <laughs> yeah, I think so. I disagree. Okay. Uh, rewatch the Gold Cup semi-final against Jamaica mm-hmm. when we won 3-1 and absolutely blitzed them in the first half. That was the top, top performance under Bearhalter for the U.S. men's national team. But it was quickly forgotten because then we were all about the final and Mexico and then well, we lost it. See, here's, okay, here's the reason why I wouldn't necessarily agree with you on Jamaica. Because you're absolutely right that we blitzed them for the first 15 minutes. Yeah. And then there was the rain delay. And after that, that performance was a very different performance. I think Jamaica figured a lot out and took advantage of that delay. Yeah. And the U.S. goes on to score, what, two more goals. They win 3-1, as you said. But it was those first 15 where we were like, whoa, this is a different yeah. team. This is what it's supposed to look yeah. like, right? So but I that's would, against a good team. It is. But I want... Yeah, I guess. And then they handled the rain delay, kind mm-hmm. of, right? That could have acted absolutely like knocked us off our stride and ruined it completely. Instead, we still win 3-1. Yeah, but, but I think I I'd still think of that as like those first 15 were the moment that we saw like, oh, this is what he's trying to do. This is the team he's trying to put together. Yeah. And they're playing the way he wants. And then we did not see that for the ensuing seven. Because we didn't see it for 90 minutes. You're right. not happy about it. Okay, yeah. I get it. I get it. Okay. Yeah. And, and honestly, this question, like I'll, I'll say this to you up front, or I guess now in the middle, like... I ended up feeling sort of surprised by how much I struggled to answer this question. Well, what about the 4-0 win over Guyana, the mm-hmm. 6-0 win over Trinidad? Is it that the opposition's not strong enough for you to count it as a good performance? The only one there I had was Trinidad, the 6-0 blitz of Trinidad, just yeah. because that was such a, like, we kind of want a little bit of revenge and we did sort of dominate them. Yeah. Weakened slightly by how poor they were in the rest of that tournament yeah. and have been since. So yeah, it's not, not like they're as bad as Cuba, but it's definitely not mm-hmm. the Trinidad that even made the hex last yeah. time around. Yeah. And so really, I think a big part of, a big part of where I am with Berhalter comes from those first two friendlies when we saw them Costa Rica Panama yeah well, I mean and I, like I genuinely cannot remember what level those two teams were if it was like the B or B minus or uh, A teams for either it wasn't their strongest team right I mean yeah. and it wasn't ours either but those are the ones where we saw like wrinkles and adjustments and Nick Lima became a central midfielder and we were really excited about it and those little moments stood out to me as being like indicative of what was hopefully to come and I would say hasn't necessarily been what came after. Yeah. But those two games as well were sort of in my mind as positive performances where we saw signs of change from what had come in the previous two years. All right. So can we say to Joel though if he wants to see uh, some better success mm-hmm. First 15 minutes of USV Jamaica yes, in the Gold Cup semi. Probably the biggest one, yeah. Because, I mean, like, like the USA Uruguay game wasn't terrible, 
but it wasn't great, and it was their B minus yeah. C plus team, and it was after Mexico. So like, there are games that have been okay. Yeah, there have been games that, that have been bad, and then there have been a few games that were good, and those are the ones I think we've talked about. I think the big problem for Belt, I might have mentioned this before, is the way he treats friendlies mm-hmm. as like opportunities to experiment really hurts him in terms of uh, reputation and how the fans feel about him and the team, mm-hmm. right? The fact that we like really did take care of Jamaica in that first 15 minutes, you can in some part attribute to when we lost to them in a friendly, he tried some things out. Mm-hmm. But the fact that he was just willing to kind of try things out in that friendly and the friendly against Venezuela pre-Gold Cup and happily lose those games to work on stuff, the fact that he went up against Mexico after losing to the Gold Cup final in the next friendly and was and basically said, they're going to press so let's use this as an opportunity mm-hmm. to pass out of the back, even though it's going to fail multiple times, yeah. I think really hurts his reputation. And honestly, it's hard to watch, right? Yeah. So I, I think he makes a big mistake with those friendlies. And it, it may be the type of thing that may not cost him his job, but definitely costs him the support of uh, a lot of U.S. soccer fans. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, and I think has. And I think it's also... Not even, I'm not even saying that fans are wrong for no. losing support there, but I think you've got to sort of, you've got to know what he's doing and it kind of, it puts it in context, but it's still not, it's still not helpful. It's not. And in fact, I genuinely think it makes it worse because yeah. it, like I went into this show sort of thinking like things are bad, but he's not going to be fired. So I don't think he should be fired. I think he should be given more time and figure it out. And like, as I kind of thought more and more about the system and where we are in this team and where we are, Stuff like this where we I kind of struggle to say, like, okay, it's his first two games. It's a game in the Gold Cup against a team that we ended up destroying, ended up getting destroyed plenty. It's the first 15 minutes of another one. Then things kind of changed, and I remember that, like, standing out. Like, it is suddenly harder to list a series of good games. It, it is, at this point, about as easy to list the horrible performances for uh-huh. the U.S., and that is telling. Okay, if you don't mind, I'm going to skip ahead a question sure. because it really ties in, I think, to what we just talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, it's from Mauricio Sadikov. you ask the next two questions, in fact. Okay. Because I do not have the next one uh, after this written down. So, <laughs> it's from Mauricio Sadikov. Mm-hmm. Asks, is it possible that Berhalter set up this team to beat the minnows, like Jamaica, Cuba, Panama, I guess you could also add Costa Rica's B team, um, to avoid missing out on the next World Cup? Um, but so when he faces decent competition, like Mexico or now Canada, who we kind of assume are now a decent team, mm-hmm. right, after that performance, um, when, that, when we face decent competition, the team just folds. Okay. So has Behalter set up a team that can beat Minnows but loses to decent competition? I have a short answer and then a longer answer. My short answer is no. That is not what he has done here. Okay. But my longer answer is I think so, Like what Mauricio's question made me realize is that Mauricio is not far off from what I think has actually happened. It's just I don't think it was necessarily intentional. Yeah, but my answer is not deliberately but maybe accidentally. Right, because <laughs> what I would say, the best way I can explain this is we – this is genuinely is the best way I can explain this. We play – uh, amateur soccer here in Richmond, there are, what, eight divisions, including, like, Premier, and then mm-hmm. it goes down to seventh. So if you are a third-division team in that league that suddenly got thrown into the, the seventh division, way easier to play a possession-oriented, like, high-intensity system yeah. than if you're a third-division team playing in the top division of that league. Because yeah. then you're playing against way better teams who can sort of neutralize that, and you have to be completely technically able to play against those Some teams. of them won't even give you the ball. They won't even give you the ball. <laughs> And so that's what I would say is essentially his system is working against weaker teams because it's easier to play possession against teams that are going to sit off or don't have the ability to handle what you're doing against stronger teams who do and have the ability to adapt and figure it out and the coaching that allows that to happen. You run into the problems we've discussed. The best description I've heard of this um, is that because Behalter is asking them to, you know, perform specific patterns and all Mm -hmm. that kind of thing. 
it's not instinctual yet so a lot of players are taking yeah. a half second or whatever to think about what they're supposed to be doing and to process it um, that that works against a team like say Cuba who just aren't quick enough to close you down mm-hmm. and to cause you trouble so you have the time to think for half a second and then and then perform your next your yeah. next move your next pass your next run against a team that plays at a higher pace a higher intensity that half second will cost you against Mexico. It will even cost you against Canada. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and I want to like double down on a point you made it's there. Processing speed. It's processing speed exactly. But the thing that can be confusing with that is that like it's easy to think of that as like oh he put his foot on the ball and he looked around. He didn't know what his next move was going to be. He's playing too slow. That is the case. But I think there are also times when if there's a first time ball on like from the channel into space and it could lead to a breakaway, but instead of playing that the player dribbles down the field and then crosses and it turns out to be a good cross and it's a corner. That is kind of the same thing in my mind because that player hasn't had the reps and the awareness to know, like, I played that first-time ball in as opposed to I'm going to dribble down because I'm fast and I have the ability. And that sort of is what, what happened, I think, routinely against Cuba. That's right. I said it for Alexis's annoyance. And so the moments from— Wait, did you do it closer to how he suggested No, I think I did it the way that annoys him more. <laughs> uh, but so then the moments of, like, Weston McKinney playing that little, like, the little flick in for Jordan Morris, yeah. that is a more important thing to me because in that moment, yes, he wasn't under much pressure, but he still— made a very quick decision yeah. that wasn't a, I'm going to turn and dribble at this defender that I'm less impressed by against yeah. a team like Cuba. Okay, I think that's a fair or answer. Cuba. <laughs> uh, Bart Keeler. Mm-hmm. Bart Keeler asks, which three players that could reasonably be called in for November, so this is the, the game against Canada and then Cuba, um, would make you confident the U.S. men's national team can win the group. Okay. And now, we had a little bit of like like uncertainty about how to approach this. Yeah, correct? so I, I will say I took this as sort of which three players that weren't co- weren't called up for the last game mm-hmm. uh, would be like called in for the next Canada game uh, that would make me confident the US can win the group. I do recognize that that's not necessarily in you know, the words of the question. Do you know why I didn't take it that way? Why is that? Because Daryl Grove assembled the questions and later on we have a question about which player that hasn't been capped yet would you most want to see called in? Okay. <laughs> all right, but there are three players who all right. have all been capped that uh-huh. I want to see called in who weren't involved in the October okay. game against Canada. All right. All right. So I'm, I'm somewhere in between, but I'll go with like two that have not been involved yet or like recently. Uh, I would say the biggest one that I would love to see called in that would make me feel way more confident is Josie Altador. It yeah. really, really would. And I know that's probably going to make some heads roll and some people punch things, but he is our best striker when he's, when he's fully fit and ready to go. Yep. He is better than everybody else. And we're pro-Josh Sargent, mm-hmm. but if you saw Sargent's performance against Canada, I guarantee Josie Altador would have performed better. Yeah. Yes. Would have been more effective. Yes. Yeah. The, the, the one little clip of him trying to, Josh Sargent trying to drop in and hold up play and his first touch, I, I talked about this already, but I have to reiterate, his first touch goes so far backwards that it literally starts a Canada counterattack with Jonathan David. That's how bad that first touch was. Right. Josie, say what you want about him, is at least going to hold it up more than that. Mm-hmm. And so I think Josie Altador I also think Josie's in, better suited mm-hmm. to the role that, um, yep. from what I've seen, the role of the striker in the US men's national team is often to come deep, connect play, and then other people can run behind him. Like Jordan mm-hmm. Morris as the right winger will run in behind him. Um, I think you see Josie do that a lot with Toronto, where he's not just the farthest forward striker. He comes deep and like Pozuelo runs beyond yep. him, right? So mm-hmm. I think it just, the role suits Josie better than it suits Zardes, or right now it suits Josh Sargent. Absolutely. Sargent would be much happier just being on the shoulder of a defender. Yeah, yeah. exactly, yeah. Uh, so that's one. And then uh, one more clarification. Did you say, so you're looking at this as players that were not included in October? Yeah, basically okay. three players that weren't in the, okay. involved in the USV Canada game in October but could be in November that I th- that could make a difference. Then Josie Altador is my number two answer because Tyler Adams is number one with several circles around it. Same. 
Same. I think Tyler Adams would make a huge difference to mm-hmm. that midfield. Yeah. yeah. I mean, especially because if we want to see Burhalter try different things, uh, again, Scuffed did a great kind of had a great conversation about Michael Bradley and is this team once again being built around him? Yeah. And I am sort of increasingly inclined to agree that it sort of is. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if that's the best thing, especially with how readily we get overrun in midfield. I really want to see how different that midfield looks with Tyler Adams yep. sitting a little bit deeper. So I, I double down and say it's not just built around specifically Michael Bradley. Mm-hmm. It's built around a Michael Bradley type player, yeah. right? So when it's not Michael Bradley, true, very true, very it's true. Will Trapp or it's Jackson Yule, right. who all bring somewhat similar... Um, strengths right their strength is their passing right Mm -hmm. it's essentially all about being someone who can control the tempo of the game um, and pick out passes um, instead of being a destroyer right and Tyler Adams his passing is fine it's not quite like the Jackson Ewell whatever level but his um, winning the ball back capabilities are what I I think based on watching the Canada game the defeat they're what I want I want someone who's going to fight for the ball so that's why I think bringing Tyler Adams in and playing him as the number six would one improve the team and two if that were to happen it would signal that Greg Berhalter was thinking okay, the thing I've been doing maybe needs a few tweaks and here's one. Yeah. Right? And that's why it would be so encouraging to me is because it would be Berhalter deviating a little bit from his system and showing that he's flexible and willing to adapt. That would be nice. Yeah. That would be nice. So those are two for me. I've said two, Daryl. Uh, I'm sure you've got some on that list as well. Checking my watch. And it is once again Octavius <laughs> O'Clock. <laughs> Dwayne Octavius Holmes, that is the big call-up for me. That uh, He was not involved in October. We all thought he should have been. Holmes brings energy, brings hustle, brings dynamism and attacking thrust to the mm. midfield. So for me, yes, yeah, Tyler Adams, Dwayne Holmes, Josie Altador. We have the same answer. What was the, what was the exact question, though? Um, which three players that could be reasonably called in for November would make you confident the U.S. can win the group? So that was the one that made me hesitant on Dwayne Holmes, not because I have anything against him, but because is he a player that, like, like what is it about him that makes you think, like, with him in the squad, yep, they're going to win, they're going to be way better because Holmes is there as opposed to somebody else? Because similar to Adams, he brings something to the midfield that was absolutely lacking mm-hmm. um, against Canada, Okay, right? It was, like, it was sort of, first of all, just the... Uh, aggressive hustle to win the ball back that wasn't there Dwayne Holmes brings that Um, the willingness to just drive at people with the ball wasn't there he brings that and the willingness to sort of pass and move which again I've watched Dwayne Holmes twice for the US Mm -hmm. with those half an hour cameos pre-goal cut before we got injured I have watched him for Derby so this is based on actually watching him play not just me imagining a version of Dwayne Holmes that only exists on Twitter mm-hmm. you, know, you know what I'm saying this is what Dwayne Holmes brings yeah and I, and I will add that like my thoughts on Christian Roldan are fairly well documented at this point I think I have already beaten yeah, you wrote that manifesto. several times you I wrote did. that manifesto you put leaflets under everybody's uh, windshield right? from my cabin in Montana <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't know why I made that about the Unabomber but I did and I didn't get that reference let's but, move on swiftly okay, yeah. um, but I I do think, like, if you're looking at just straight-up upgrades, Dwayne Holmes, for everything you mentioned, is an upgrade over Christian Roldan, mm-hmm. especially because uh, I, th- I trust Dwayne Holmes' passing ability, if nothing else, and his yeah. ability to kind of play quick, simple passes faster. And not play safe passes. Mm-hmm. And yeah. maybe not miscontrol the ball and pass it out of bounds. And then, like, not quite answering Bart's question, but my other one, because, yes, I do not want balls passed out of bounds. The player that I strangely, if he's in in the roster, in the squad, is healthy – always makes me feel optimistic and happy is Weston McKinney because he's a player who I kind of always rely on to to do something as vague as that sounds but it is like I I rely on him to be a warrior if we need someone to battle I rely on him to be a playmaker if we need that to be the number eight if we need that to sit a little bit deeper to like get in people's faces if that has to happen to back of his teammates like he does so many different things for this team that he is the player right now for me that if he's in that squad I'm like all right okay at least there's that at least we've got that why did neither of us say John Brooks 
Because it's the same thing. The same reason why I asked you to clarify the question is because I am not as worried about the defensive side of the U.S.'s game. I think some of the problems we've had defensively against teams like Canada and Jamaica were of our own doing. Yeah. But a lot of it, I think, was us failing to have any sort of consistent attacking play and possession to alleviate some of the defensive pressure. Yeah, that's Eventually, fair. teams will find a way through. And, like, Canada, what, did it finish 2-0? I can't even remember at this point because I've blocked it out. Like... Like maybe maybe that's less defensible. Sorry, you're I, losing... listeners, I nodded. I nodded solemnly. It's I just realized you couldn't hear that. I, yeah, I just <laughs> really did try to block that out. But like when it's one nil, it's more. It's Which the more US those... defense has tried to block that yeah, out. Yeah, exactly. They probably did. I just think that like if you're losing games one nil, then to me that speaks to like your offense is not scoring. Eventually, teams are going to score on you. So the defense could be a little bit better, but that's not where my concern is. And so John Brooks to me isn't the player that's going to come in and sort of change the entire team and make us start scoring goals and also stop conceding them, he'll probably help with, with not conceding. I don't know if we score more with John yeah, yeah. Brooks and the team. Tyler Adams helps both ways. Yeah. 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 Um, all right. Certainly does. Many more questions to get through, but first, oh, gosh. today's show... Oh, I cannot tell you how excited I am to see Tyler Adams playing soccer again. I, I, like, I have always enjoyed Tyler Adams. I never thought I would get to this point of just straight up like, is he around? Is he on? <laughs> the way you were with Pulisic today is how I am with Tyler Adams right yep. now. And I know that you're that way with Tyler Adams too. you got I a lot sure of love am. to spread, my friend. I do. <laughs> I've got love for today's sponsor. You should. Today's sponsor is Hims, a wellness brand for men. Mm-hmm. So you've heard us talking about Hims and how they're helping guys look their best. Um, if you haven't yet, listen up. We're going to tell you what it's all about. We are because it is the case that 66% of men start to lose their hair by the age of 35. And we live in a world of like ultra high definition where you can see <laughs> Every hair follicle of coaches. If you're trying yeah. trying to wear like a bad rug or get those plugs in there, a bad the, rug, <laughs> the like or the like ant leg plugs, as Bill Burr called them. Yeah, it's going to be obvious. You can't have that. So you've got to go with actual medical solutions yep. that are natural that don't stand out, and that's what Hims offers you. You've basically got two choices, right? You can do the Michael Bradley slash Greg Berhalter mm-hmm. approach, where you just shave your head, yep. let a few follicles stick out. You might be able to pick it up in 4K, but mostly you've just said, "All right, I'm shaving it." Or before it's too late, you can do something about it. Uh, this is very random, and I will get back to that in a moment. But I was watching. What, you mean the ad? Yes, I was watching Larry <laughs> David, an old appearance on Letterman because it was Letterman hosting. Yeah, and it, and he talks about how he doesn't trust David Letterman because David's not bald, and how he needs more bald people on the show. And then Paul Schaefer is like, "I'm here," and he just turns around and looks at him and turns back and says, "You don't count. He shaved. We don't know how bald you are. That doesn't count. You're not bald to me." And that's true. Like if you shave it all off, then that's a different look. Yeah. If you want to keep the hair, then Hims has you covered <laughs> because you can turn to real doctors who utilize science. Science is important. Uh, Jesse Pinkman would agree with that yep. as well. None um, of them own snakes that they squeeze to get oil out of. <laughs> is that how it works? I don't know. <laughs> you just you twist them up and bring them out like Pretty a towel. Sure, right? <laughs> it's either that or you're like milking them, like milking the venom out of them, in which case don't do that either because yeah. that could go bad. So the Hims doctors don't do any of that? I don't believe yeah. so. And if they do, get it together, Hims doctors. <laughs> they definitely don't. What they will do is basically allow you to answer a few quick questions. A doctor then reviews those questions. If they determine the product is right for you, they prescribe you medication to treat hair loss and it's shipped to your door. To so your you, door? You don't even have to go That's anywhere. where you live. Yeah, exactly. Perfect. Yeah, you don't have to be on Letterman doing talk shows to get these <laughs> products. They come right to but you. But if you get invited on Letterman, um, oh, you'll, you'll be on the Netflix show, right? Yeah, you will. My next guest needs no introduction. <laughs> yes. Honestly, if you invite, go on it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think so. 
<laughs> also, you can order now mm-hmm. and you can get started with the Hymns Complete Hair Kit for just $5 right now while supplies last, last and mm-hmm. subject to doctor's approval. See the website for full details and for safety information. This could cost hundreds if you went to the doctor or a pharmacy somewhere else. So go to 4 slash Total Soccer. That's F-O-R-H-I-M-S dot com slash Total Soccer. One more time, Mr. Grove. 4 slash Total Soccer. And if the email comes from Dave Letterman, say yes. Say yes to that and say thank you to Hims for sponsoring today's episode. I will also thank Shreyas Romani for our next question. Right. I can ask them now, now that I know the order again. <laughs> Shreyas asks, if you went to the eye doctor and they showed you option A, the recent <laughs> unpleasantness in Cuba, uh, or option B, the more recent unpleasantness in Toronto, and asked if option B was better, worse, or the same in terms of the U.S. men's national team, what would you say? Normally I say, can I see A again? Can yep. I see B again? That's why this- I hope I never have to get glasses, because I'm going to be in trouble it's, for that It's one. really hard to be decisive yeah. about which one is better. Um, in this case, I would not want to see either again. Um, objectively, I think they were equally bad, yep. um, but for very different reasons. <laughs> we spent too reasons. much time together. Uh-huh. You write the same I thing. Mean, I'm just waiting for you to you steal my second bullet point. It's just really hard to separate the context of what happened in Cuba. And there we are. Right? <laughs> yeah. Because maybe you have to try and watch it in a vacuum, but if you're watching it knowing that World Cup qualification is on the line, then it's obviously a lot worse, mm-hmm. right? But I'm guessing that Shreyas wants us to answer in a vacuum, like with the the context and what's at stake removed. I think, and so my answer is option B is probably about the same from a game plan and the way it was executed standpoint. Yeah, Option B may actually be slightly worse. Like in a vacuum, the gameplay, just because thinking back to those Trinidad goals, both of them sort of fluky, yeah. whereas you would not argue that anything about Canada was fluky. They deserved that win and those goals. So it's one own goal off of Omar Gonzalez, mm, and it's like a like, weird deflective cross, and yeah. then it's what a, just a, a kind of incredible goal from yeah, distance. Yeah, screamer right? from distance, yeah. yeah. And maybe Tim Howard shares some responsibility there. You know what else? The U.S. did create chances in that game. Yeah, they did. Right? Pulisic scored, and I believe Detwat Dempsey hit the post. A mm-hmm. bunch of other chances were created but not scored. So, yeah, maybe we're leaning into... Um, Option B was worse, right? So option A is, I guess, the lenses that I want? Yes. So Yeah, right? I never thought I'd say that about that Mm -hmm. Cougar game. But I think once you remove the vacuum and remember everything else, uh, option B is way better because that loss to Trinidad, unless something horrific happens and I don't even want to think about what that would take, that will be the worst loss, my least favorite game in history yeah. until I write my hipster alternative book about how that actually sparked yeah. the turnaround and it's my favorite game <laughs> for what it represents. So the actual um, eye doctor or ophthalmologist mm-hmm. um, <laughs> test would be, do you want it with the context or without the context? Yeah. Is it better there with the go. context yes. or without the there context? You got to add that one first. You got to add that one first. <laughs> Thank you, Shreyas, for that question. Mm-hmm. Though. Um, next question. You ready? Do uh, you want me to keep going since you did three in a row or do you want to get this one? I want to get it. All right. Question comes from David Holsinger. David asks, how relevant are Hugo Perez's criticisms of the U.S. development programs today? And what should the U.S. Soccer Federation do about it? So, first mm. of all, what are Hugo Perez's uh, criticisms? Do you have the, the quote in front of you? I do. So it's from uh, a, a great article uh, written for The Nation about kind of the status of the U.S. men's na- national team, but more so kind of exploring the lack of diversity, specifically uh, Latino players in yep. U.S. soccer and why that might be the case. The phrase is Latino neglect. There we go. Um, in, the, in the URL slug mm-hmm. that, I've, that I've got here. Um, Perez is interviewed. Hugo Perez is interviewed. Um, there's essentially uh, a segment where they talk about the fact that he was told more than once not to speak Spanish to Latino players when he was the U.S. under-15 coach. He mm. was told not to speak Spanish to Latino players and that his continued use of Spanish on the field may have contributed to him being let go. Mm-hmm. 
And U.S. soccer has said that was never the case, that like coaches have been allowed to communicate in, in different languages. They, the thing that they want is like everybody to be on the same game plan. That mm-hmm. was the response there. But Perez I, swears that this is what I, I believe Hugo Perez. Yeah, I and I believe too. him because we have heard, you and I have heard of other situations with other former youth coaches where there have been similar incidents or incidents mm-hmm. towards uh, specifically Spanish-speaking players uh, and, and just some like altercations or some yep. corrections on how they should be talking or what they should be communicating. So I, I think it stands to reason that, yeah, this probably did happen. Two sources who asked not to be named out of fear of retaliation confirmed that Perez spoke to them at the time about the request from U.S. soccer officials not to speak Spanish with players during matches or training. Mm-hmm. Now, it's worth noting that doesn't really confirm that much, though, because it's like they're confirming that he told them that he was told that yeah. around the time. Okay. So, But it still says that he was talking to people about it. it. It isn't just a thing that he's making up now, having left uh, to go coach in Mexico. Yep. And I think there are there are other criticisms. I can't remember if Perez has said these specifically, but one of the big criticisms of the development programs is that, for example, the youth national teams are pulled from almost exclusively development academies yeah. plus some overseas players, right? right? And I do know that one of Hugo Perez's uh, pitches to U.S. soccer was, hey, I'm going to pull from um, leagues you've probably never even heard of. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go and watch um, some Hispanic kids playing soccer and give them opportunities. Yeah. And U.S. soccer, as I understand it, was not on board with that. Right. And I think we've talked about this before, right? So I don't want to get too deep into it. But there is a whole thing of U.S. soccer, because they run the development academies or you know are heavily involved in the development academy system, they promote that by calling those guys up to the U.S. national team first. Right. Every press release that is about, say, you can find the U.S. under-17 roster release, press release, um, it'll say X number of players are from development academies. They yeah. proudly state that they each do. time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they're trying to like self-reinforce the development academies each time, meanwhile missing out on all the uh, players who are not in development academies, which includes many, many, many Latino players. I think the Allianz estimate was what, like 10 million players are missing out. Uh, they have a vested interest in saying that there's more, but yeah, even yeah. so that's the number. U.S. soccer, I think, didn't have that readily available. And the other thing that I, I think is very important there is like you're right that these players are coming from development academies. Okay. A lot of those players are coming from MLS-affiliated development academies, most of which at this point, uh, all but two, uh, are are free. There's still some that are pay-to-play, but... All of the players who are playing in the development academy who are not playing for MLS teams are more than likely paying for that privilege, which right. is a lot of money, which is an issue we've also discussed. But mm-hmm. that's also worth reiterating that like, it can be tens of thousands of dollars to play yep. for a development academy team. So, I mean, to David's question, what should the U.S. Soccer Federation do about it? Mm-hmm. I mean, to me, they should absolutely change course. Yep. Like, it should be encouraged to speak Spanish to Latino players. Hugo Perez makes the point that... Yep. Um, I can't remember the exact phrase, but he said the difference between saying, between saying good job and I think it's like buena mm-hmm. uh, to a Hispanic player. Like mm-hmm. the phrase buena means the world, he says to them, in a way that good job doesn't. Mm-hmm. That there are like cultural differences to what words mean and what, what they mean in Spanish and what they mean yeah. in English. Um, and if you're going to communicate with Hispanic players, you may as well do it as effectively as possible. And if, you, if, they need a, if they need a lift, then you can do it in Spanish and give them the extra lift. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. So, so we're missing out on all kinds of opportunities here. I mean, and I think that there are even like... Very... Don't get me started on the Twitter account. That's fair. <laughs> but like there are very basic things I want. That's why I'm just going to keep going. Very basic things that like could have been done and should have been done. For example, they assemble the like diversity commission and they have 60 people on it. Two of them are Latino. One of them is Carlos Cordero. Not a great look. Neither mm-hmm. of those two, I think, have any b- soccer background or a significant soccer background. So that right there, m- one of my answers is hire more than two Latinos for your diver- diversity commission. Yeah. That would be a big one. But like the thing that I really enjoyed about this article, 
to back it up for a moment is it's one of those things. We'll put a link in the show notes if you want to read it. Thank you. Um, It's sort of like I I had disagreements with it about a quarter of the way through that about three quarters of the way through I was realizing that I had sort of fundamentally misunderstood aspects of U.S. soccer like until today that basically I just have always assumed – we, we make the World Cup in the 50s and things are fine. It falls off and sort of soccer like, – like my mom talked about like playing soccer. My dad talked about playing soccer in the 70s and it was like either in European schools, European-oriented schools or like in rich suburban schools. That it was like rich suburban kids kept soccer going and that's sort of representative of today. And to me that was like that was the only way it existed. And to realize like, yeah, kind of, but it shouldn't have been yeah. is a sort of like, oh, it should have been. Oh, that's not good. We're not good. This is bad. Like that's kind of my thought process. <laughs> so maybe the answer to David's question is the first step is the U.S. Soccer Federation should basically admit that there is a problem. Yeah. And that is the first step towards trying to fix it, mm-hmm. right? Admit that there's a problem um, and then like make genuine efforts to recruit Hispanic coaches, Hispanic administrators, um, make efforts to reach out to like these other leagues mm-hmm. that Hugo Perez was talking about pulling from. May, I don't know. Maybe it's too late to hire Hugo Perez back, right? Because he's now working as a scout for Mexico. Mm-hmm. Maybe don't let the next Hugo Perez go. That would definitely be good. Yes. Um, I think one of the other aspects of the article that, that I think would be useful to remember is the point about how, like, if you've got a primarily Latino league, there is a decent chance that some of those players are undocumented or some of their kids are playing yeah. and they're undocumented. There is going to be – if you and me show up to be like, we're here to scout, they're going to make sure you are ice later. <laughs> like, like, you know, like, it's not, it's not an easy thing to, like, like, just, like, drop yourself into a new culture short yeah. of moving to a different country. But I do think, like, when I got my coaching licenses, this was years ago, it's all about – how do you teach, like, coach players for the game? What are your sessions like? How do you build a session to make your players better? There is not a lot of outreach education, and that is a thing that's really difficult, that if you're coaching a youth team with two kids who aren't native speakers and two kids from the inner city and two kids from the suburb and they're kind of all spread out, it's a very unlikely team. But, like, it can be a difficult thing because it should be what the U.S. national team looks like. There, it should. Well, yeah. yeah, it should be. But like, if you're, but if you, my background is like, I grew up in the suburbs. I grew up in a predominantly white area. Like, and I went to school in the city, but it was a magnet school again. Like, it's, yeah. it, and so if you if you don't mind me uh, spilling some tea, your your suburb was literally called Bonaire, yeah, which is the most middle class sound in suburb. I, I think mean, I it's, think it of. was the resort town for like the industrial area of Richmond to get away to. Yeah. Yes, yes, Bonaire. good air. Thank you. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yes. Thank you, Daryl. Um, but uh, like, my point there is just. Well, thank that, you like, for translating us for those those who didn't grow up in middle class. I do my best. Oh, and don't worry, our water tower says the year it was established, but circa that year because <laughs> we can't even say established the year or around <laughs> this time. We have to use fake Latin. Um, but like, like unless you are have an education background or, or like it, you have made it your life's mission to go out and experience different cultures, it can be a really challenging and intimidating thing. And and all I mean to say is that. It's tough to like not have your background and your experiences completely inform the way you coach. And so if – as a stupid example, but like if I'm referencing Seinfeld to a group of kids, well, they're kids. They're not going to get it anyway. But there's also yeah, people – Yeah, well, this dude's old. Yeah, or just like <laughs> any, I don't know, modern show like some people aren't, aren't watching that like it doesn't resonate. And so you have to think about it of like how do I reach people that otherwise aren't being reached just in my coaching? And I think that's the thing that U.S. soccer could do is emphasize more like diversity, community outreach and how do you coach and how do you reach kids that you don't have a connection to. The problem is they would say that they're doing all that, but all these examples, Mm -hmm. like what what Hugo Perez is talking about, means that they're not really. It's a lot of like surface stuff that isn't actually making a giant difference. I would argue that change starts at the top, which leads me to Ryan LaRose's question. 
if Carl Martino mm-hmm. was elected instead of Carlos Cordero, so there was the uh, U.S. soccer presidential election. If Carl Martino was elected instead of Carlos Cordero, would U.S. soccer still have all the issues it currently has? Uh, meaning equal pay, paying lobbying firms to lobby against equal pay, mm-hmm. U.S. men's soccer coaching, coaching search fiasco, U.S. men's soccer in general, the toxic office culture in the U.S. soccer organization that we heard about on Glassdoor. Would we still have all those problems if it had been Kyle Martino elected instead of Carlos Cordero? Mm-hmm. And you could obviously add the losing Hugo Perez and the complaints about not reaching out to Latino players. Yes. Um- so my, my honest answer is this, like maybe culture, the cultural aspect is, is better because I do think that's a thing that he could immediately recognize Come this is not good. Yes. And I think he would work towards that. But to, to, to quote slash paraphrase Logan Roy, there may be multiple succession references in this episode. Uh, Logan Roy screaming, we're turning a tanker. And that is the thing I think to remember that even if it's if it weren't different, like right away. I think there would be a lot happening, more, a lot more happening behind the scenes to start yeah. changing things. So even if it, what if we like, threw some workers overboard as we turn the tanker? <laughs> it d- depends on if those are real people, Daryl. <laughs> Again, this is succession. Please don't think we're talking about real things, especially with the conversation we just had. Um, yes. So, yeah. so, but that is my answer. Is I think that basically he would probably be trying to turn the ship a lot faster and more aggressively than the people at the helm right now. Yep. But I think that things would still be roughly the same because to come in and sort of we've experienced this a couple times in Richmond of the new mayor comes in and is like I'm going to change everything and then yeah. what they do is run for governor. Mm-hmm. So like I, I think if you don't or cozy up with developers or that too. Mm-hmm. Yes. So I think it's really difficult to come in. And hit the ground running and know exactly how to operate, especially if you've never been in a kind of governmental uh, position yeah. before. I, I would argue that Kyle Martino, um, to me, for want of a better word, he seems woke, right? Yeah. In a way that Carlos Cordero mm-hmm. does not seem. He seems more Goldman Sachsy. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. So I honestly think things like hiring a, lobby, a lobbying firm mm-hmm. to make the case against equal pay and against the U.S. women's national team is a thing that a former Goldman Sachs guy like Carlos Cordero would definitely sign off on. Kyle Martino, I think, would look at that and say, no, that's a terrible idea and a terrible look for us. Let's not do that. So I think there are things that have happened that would not have happened under a Kyle Martino presidency. Yeah, I would yeah. agree with that. I also wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised if Kyle Martino, because he really would represent change and a fresh start, that kind of thing. He could have come in and said, hey, we have failed Hispanic players, Latino players in the United States. Uh, that changes right now. Let's change that under my watch. Here are several initiatives to try and make a difference. I really think some of this stuff could have happened under a different president. I mean, worth remembering, he was endorsed by Street Soccer USA, an organization yes. that you and I both uh, know and care about. Yeah. Uh, and like, I think you don't have that background and come in and then think like, no, nah, status quo is fine. Like, yeah. you, you work towards change. And I think yep. he probably would have, uh, certainly more so than a lot of the people there so, now. I, I agree with you. I don't think he could turn the entire tanker. Mm-hmm. But anything that's happened since 2018, um, mistakes that have been made since then, I don't think would have been made under Carl Martino. Right? I agree. The tanker wouldn't have continued in the same direction. You know who definitely <laughs> wouldn't have hired a lobby firm to lobby against equal pay? Who's that? Hope Solo. Hope Solo. <laughs> this is true. Yeah. Uh, you know and, who else wouldn't? And she definitely shut down JP Delacamera too, so that's fine. Jason Davis mm-hmm. and Jared Dubois. Neither of those guys would have hired a lobbying firm to lobby against the U.S. women's national team. I mean, I don't, I don't know what Jason's up to. I don't, know, <laughs> I don't know. He could be pulling the strings behind the scenes. Not that. Mm-hmm. Not that. We have a brief message to play you from Jason Davis and Jared Dubois. Please take a listen. Hey, everybody. It's Jason Davis and Jared Dubois. You might remember us from the best soccer show. We got some news for you. 
We're back. Just like back in the 80s when Super Friends came on the air and Batman and Superman were finally on the same team. That's what you're going to get with JD and the Rod and the Total Soccer Show. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. We're live on Twitch on Wednesday nights at 10 p.m. Eastern, taking phone calls, podcast out on Thursday morning. That's right. The boys from the best soccer show, JD and the Rod, are back. So there you go. Jason and Jared are back. If you're listening to this on Wednesday, they are back tonight. And they do listener call-ins, mm-hmm. which we do not do. Um, I think it's one of the best things about their show that you can call in. And if you want to vent about Greg Berhalter or U.S. Soccer Federation or anything else, those are great guys to vent to because they'll listen to you and then they'll react. I really think it could be America's soccer call-in mm-hmm. show. One thing, I don't think they've ever been asked about pro-rel, so everybody should call <laughs> in and ask them lots of pro-rel questions, please. <laughs> but, that, I mean, they will, mm-hmm. I think, answer almost any question, They right? certainly will. Yeah. And also, I mean, I don't know how long it's been since the best soccer show was around. I want to say three, four years. Yeah. Decades. It's been decades. It's been three, uh, three or four decades. 1950. Exactly. 1950 yeah. is the last the time. The original podcast. Yeah. Something it's serial. No, no, no. It's <laughs> the one of the 1950s. So we want to welcome them back to the soccer podcast landscape. They are a welcome addition or re, re, re-addition? Reintroduction. Yeah. Sort of like Tyler Adams. They've been out for a while. Or yeah. Jay They've been out for a while. There we go. But now they're coming back. Now they're coming back. <laughs> so welcome back, fellas. Happy to have you back in the podcast uh, what would you call the like, USA Rising Tide? Uh, yeah, rising, ti- rising Tide lifts all boats. They were one of the people that rose the tide. So would, <laughs> they, the say, would they be the tide or would they be one of the boats? They were the tide. They would be contributing to the tide. They're now the tide and the boats. Let's move on to the questions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Next question comes from Greg Velasquez. Another podcast. There now. we go. So the other half of Scuffed. It's a, po- it's a podcast spectacular yeah. of sorts. Should the people responsible for hiring Greg Berhalter be fired along with Greg Berhalter and who should replace them and him? The second part of that question mm-hmm. assumes yes. Yes, it right? does. Um, I don't know. It's messy, right? Because I looked into this. Two-thirds of the people that hired him have already kind of moved on mm-hmm. or been promoted or changed their position, right? So contrary to what people believe, it wasn't Jay Bearhelter that hired Greg Bearhelter, right? Jay Bearhelter is the what is currently the chief commercial and strategy mm-hmm. officer. From what I understand, he was deliberately excluded from the, uh, the coaching hiring situation, right? But didn't he hire Ernie Stewart? He did hire Ernie Stewart, but then they did the coaching search mm-hmm. uh, without without uh, Jay Berhalter's involvement, right? So I did the, hear that the first interview question from Jay Berhalter to Ernie Stewart was, will you hire my brother? I mean, so, may, we may uncover evidence in the future. That was not the first interview question. That, that's, that, that's what happened. I, I honestly don't believe it. I honestly mm-hmm. think the three people who said they conducted the coaching search are the three people that did conduct the coaching search. Ernie Stewart, who was at the time the GM. Ryan Mooney, who was at the time the chief soccer officer. He is now gone. Um, and Nico Romain, who is still Chief Sport Development Officer. Mm-hmm. Ernie Stewart has been promoted from GM to Sporting Director. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I have been less impressed by Ernie Stewart than I thought I would be. I, I assumed that was kind of the, the smart hire that was moving in the right direction. With that said, I do not think that he should be fired because I think the point of having a GM is to sort of have a vision for the program. But that vision – you're then hiring people to execute it, and that doesn't necessarily mean they're always going to be able to do that. Yeah. And so my argument would be that like a mistake is a mistake until it's a pattern. Right now, if you want to say Greg Berhalter is a mistake, if they were to fire him, then that's an individual mistake. If he hired another coach who did the exact same thing, yeah. then it's a pattern for me. I think and that's so fair. it could still be the case that Ernie Stewart had this whole idea for how things were supposed to go. He thought Berhalter could do it. Berhalter maybe can't do it now, but Ernie Stewart still wants to go with a more like – 
progressive, proactive, attacking approach with possession and player switching, and maybe he'll bring in somebody else to do that. But if he does and it doesn't work again, then we can look at maybe there are larger issues that need uh, replacing. I'd also I'd add that Ernie Stewart is maddening mm-hmm. because he seems to have no interest in talking to the media. Yep. Um, so he's never really laid out what he does day to day, what his big vision for the program is, how all that works. So we kind of have... We don't have a metric against which to judge him because he hasn't given us one and he won't talk to us. We're, best, we're best friends. My second point was <laughs> uh, more clarity and transparency in terms of vision and approach would be good, though. Yeah, <laughs> because, so we can find out what he's doing. Because that is also the frustrating aspect and why I've been more like let down by Ernie Stewart is yeah. that if you don't ever say what you're trying to do – other than, you know, we want to play beautiful soccer and qualify for a World Cup. Like, no one out there is like, actually, what I wanted to do is play ugly soccer and not qualify. Like, that's, <laughs> you're not saying anything. So I think I did. I want to play ugly soccer and not even make the hex. <laughs> it's a very specific set of goals that I don't think will get you hired. You never know, though. Uh, but I just wish there had been a little bit, there were a little bit more uh, clarification of what the vision is, of what the strategy yep. is, of what they're working towards. I think that would certainly be useful. And here's the other thing. This was Ernie Stewart being hired mm-hmm. and Kate Margraff being hired as a US WNT GM. Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually the entire US uh, women's program GM, mm-hmm. right? Um, it's a whole new organizational structure at US Soccer, right? right. This whole new thing of having um, uh, employees who are in charge of like overseeing the coaching staff, that's a new thing. It's a complete organizational change. Mm-hmm. So if you bring the people in, uh, and then fire them all after a year or so, then you're basically like the Trump administration where you just keep churning through uh, various cabinet appointments, right? Except we may they as lasted well. a year? Yeah, they probably lasted longer. Like the yeah, the, yeah, yeah, that's like, mm-hmm. uh, he lasted a million Scaramouches. Um, so, but yeah, I think it, you should actually give the person time. <laughs> that dude should never not be a punching bag. Yeah, continue. <laughs> you should, we should give everybody who hired Greg Berhalter mm-hmm. time to, like, basically I'm agreeing with your first premise, which is give them time to see what they do next if they end up firing Greg Berhalter. Yeah. Now, do you think Ernie Stewart should have been promoted? I don't know. I, I don't think so, especially because, again, that was not very well described. No. Right? It, was not, um, it was not well presented. We don't quite understand what he's doing that's different. It also, in my opinion, um, uh, when they hired Kate Margraff as the GM, then they promoted Ernie Stewart to overseeing the men's and women's mm-hmm. programs. It felt a little bit like we've got to have the man higher up the, the hierarchy. Right? Yeah. I don't know if that's the case, but it at least looked that way. Yeah, it, yeah. it, 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 it was sure a weird felt that looked. way. Yes, it was, yeah. not, it was not the best of looks. And uh, since Greg Velasquez... Also, where's the men's GM? That's another fine question. <laughs> another fine question. But since Greg is asking this, I will cite the Scotch Podcast one more time. They, I think they made the argument that Ernie Stewart has done, or they just stated, Ernie Stewart has done two press conferences, I think, one yeah, of which yeah. was to announce... He, he famously doesn't like talking yeah. to the media. He announced has no respect. Greg Berhalter, I think, was one, and number two was to announce his promotion. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so those are your two press conferences you've gotten so far, uh, more or less. Oh, and if anything, like the, ch- the the problems at U.S. soccer are bigger than Ernie Stewart and mm-hmm. guys like that, right? It really goes higher. It really does go higher. Yep. Um, from what I understand from the Glassdoor reviews, Jay Bearhelter is kind of the problem, but not just because he's related to Greg Bearhelter, but because he's, for, again, based on the Glassdoor reviews, establish- he's part of establishing a really bad work culture yep. um, at U.S. soccer. So the big thing to watch is, does Jay Bearhelter, currently Chief Commercial and Strategy Officer, so really he's responsible for setting ticket prices, for example, mm-hmm. um, if he is named CEO to replace Dan Flynn, then I think there's trouble. We got to hope that the CEO that they announce is maybe like a new broom kind of person. Yeah. Yeah. I like so, new brooms. Yeah. So let's hope for a new broom. Hopefully they stay new for a while. Ready for a new question? Yeah. Chris Conley 
How many times did you have to repost the listener questions link due to people not using it? Uh, I didn't have to do this. Daryl did. So I'm going to take a shot in the dark and say several was my answer. <laughs> so, yeah, I tweeted this out and mm-hmm. said we're taking U.S. men's national team's questions. Here is the link, totalsuckershow.com slash questions. Please ask your questions via this link. Yeah. Multiple people just replied with their question on Twitter. So five times I then replied with, here's the link. I gave up after five. That's right. Of the five that I sent out, I think two or three people then went and clicked the link and submitted the question via the form because that's where we collate all the questions. And I think we've answered the questions of both the people. We will answer on this show. That's good. The questions of both the people that did that. After that, there were many more, and I decided not to keep posting. I did enjoy the one. There was a couple that were like, ah, that seems like a lot of work to click a link and write the same Uh question. Yep. Oh, well. Oh, well. Yeah. Um, So, but part of this, um, I want to address this because I wonder if part of it is I shouldn't be annoyed about it, that maybe people just see a thing requesting questions on Twitter, and so they reply via Twitter. Yeah. And maybe you can't be mad at people for doing that because it's kind of a natural response. I forget what the thing is where it's like most people only read like at best 70% of a thing. Yeah. I think if you're just skimming it... uh, it has been not a frustrating thing, but a like a thing to be mindful of. My wife like pointed this out or was telling me this, and then immediately after that, like three times, I read most of her text and missed key parts of it. So I, I would say I am guilty of it uh, plenty of yeah. times as well. And we also sometimes, like when we do the Cooligans crossover yeah. episodes, we do just ask people to ask questions via mm-hmm. Twitter, right? Yes. So I'm not mad at anyone, uh, but I will say most people did respond and. Uh, the uh, the questions link. We got like a hundred questions. We did when we put the word out. And it was more than I expected. There are no questions about what pizza topping would a national team player be. So I'm, <laughs> I'm pretty happy about that. Instead, we got very good questions like uh, Andrew Moore's question: What player that hasn't played for Burhalter yet are you hoping to see get a debut soon? So do you take this as a U.S. men's national team debut or a Greg Burhalter debut? Uh, I took it because the question that hasn't played for Burhalter yet. I'm taking it as. Can have, can have appeared for the national team in the past, yeah. but has not yet played for Greg Berhalter. Tyler Adams was going to be my answer, but he's got the one. He he's does. got the one 90-minute appearance, and he that's does. it. Uh, so I still don't know what to make of him in this system, but I don't think Tyler Adams can be an answer. Uh-huh. But I also didn't want to – I'm giving you all of my answers that I didn't give. Do you want to just tell me yours no, first? No, tell me, tell me the answers well, you didn't give. So like as an example, like I heard somebody on a podcast – I won't say who they were – but they were arguing like Afonso Davies, he's been playing for Bayern Munich too and he's and he comes in and is the best player against the US. So, oh, like in comparison to Richie Ledesma and Chris Gloucester. Or Chris Richards and, even who's yeah, also with Bayern Munich too. I checked that one. Afonso Davies is not playing for Bayern too. He is playing for Bayern. He has made 10 appearances for Bayern so he far. He also has a bunch of first-team yeah. soccer experience yeah. in Major League Soccer, mm-hmm. right? So he has played um, first-team soccer. Yeah. And that was what Bayhalter seemed to lay out, right? right? He wanted players to have played first-team soccer. And so with that in mind, I'm really excited for the people you mentioned, Richie Ledesma, Alex Mendez. I want them to get starts. Yeah. I don't know if it's going to be soon. And I also want them to develop a bit more. Like, I, that's where I am. Is like, I don't mind experimentation. I wouldn't mind seeing them come in. I would probably be excited to see them included in a squad but they're not the ones i'm most hoping for because they've also got u23 duty they're gonna hopefully qualifies for the olympics yeah right so let's be excited about watching them do that and so what i'm most hopeful for is players that could come in and and maybe perform in the system and help that system function better and that's why my answer is fabian johnson because it's definitely informed by the fact that he had the interview this week where he was like no i still really want to play for the national team i just haven't been called in so that answered my question of like maybe he just said like nah i'm done with it after arena after klinsman that's enough he still wants to be involved and i think he could be a left back option i think he could be a left wing option and christian pulisic could then be the 10. Do you really think he could play left-back in this system, though? Because I think one of the reasons he's not no. even considered left-back is the type of player Bell yep. to picks to play left-back is a left-centre-back as well, right? right? So it's Tim Ream who can slide over. It's Daniel Lovitz who seems to have the facility to play left-centre-back and slide over. 
Fabian Johnson would not be doing it. I think he could do it. We had talked about back when only, our only issue was if we want to switch it and have a left attacking back and a right back who becomes the other center back. There are more issues since then, but that's what I think he could do is be the attacking left back if we wanted to like switch the side and have the right back stay home yeah. and the right center back in that system. I wonder what. So but left back. wing especially, I think he could excel. But Helter's pointed out that he's played with Fabian Johnson, right? Mm-hmm. They were at the same team in uh, in Germany uh, towards the end of Helter's career and the beginning of Johnson's career. Um, I don't get why he hasn't got a call up because I think as an attacking right back he would fit the system beautifully, right? Mm-hmm. So maybe, but maybe Bertholdt is looking at it like we've got Yedlin, we've got Cannon, we've got Lima. Um, I was thinking about Tyler Adams. Maybe it's time for the younger players to get a go at attacking right back. But mm-hmm. still, Fabian Johnson, honestly, as a winger, better than Corey Baird, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So I mean, he, there's definitely a spot for Fabian Johnson somewhere in the attacking makeup of this yeah. team. And I mean, still playing for Gladbach and a Gladbach team at that who have been top of the table this season yeah. are a strong Gladbach team, uh, especially compared to Gladbach teams of the past. So I think he makes the most sense to me. That's my answer. Did you have anybody else or were you also Fabian Johnson? I mean, Darlington Nagby, just because I, mm-hmm. I want a resolution to this weird story of Nagby not playing for the and U.S. He hasn't, national he team. He has not played for them. Yeah. He has been called. So yeah, that yeah. one works too. Um, and then the other obvious answer is Tim Weyer. Yeah, good call. Tim Weir has he not played for Berhalter yet? He has not played for Berhalter yet. Remember, he had the option to maybe be part of the Gold Cup, but he instead chose the U20 World Cup. Yeah, I forgot about it. And then he was injured in October, so we don't know if Berhalter. We actually don't know how much Berhalter likes him. I genuinely thought he had like two caps under Berhalter for like 45 minutes. No, I mean, he played endlessly under Dave Sarikin, right? But he hasn't played under Greg Berhalter. Weird. I mean, he's he's back in training with Mm -hmm. Lil. Um, He's a possibility for November against Canada if he somehow like gets playing for Lille, scores a couple of goals, there's an argument to be made for Tim Weir. Mm-hmm. There is. I, I still think, I cannot believe I'm saying this, I still think that Fabian Johnson probably has a stronger impact right now for this team than Timothy Weir would coming in. That's my, that's my bold Yeah, that would make sense. Yeah, I mean, he's an experienced player, mm-hmm. but also one with a bit of um, attacking nouse, right? Yeah. yeah. Maybe a slight chip on the shoulder? Maybe? Just Maybe. a little bit? Maybe just a little bit. Maybe. Who knows? Um, all right. Ready for today's sponsor. Today's I suppose hat I am. theme sponsor mm-hmm. is... Talisman Cap. Hat theme sponsor. Yeah. <laughs> Minnesota hat theme sponsor, Talisman Caps. That's right. Talisman Caps rose from an idea to produce the perfect cap to support the football team you love and enjoy and appreciate. That could be national team level, international, what have you. They've got lots and lots of different caps, but they also have lots and lots of other stuff as well, Daryl. They Rose. do, yeah. We've talked about the caps at length, right? If mm-hmm. you don't know about the caps by now, then I well, quality made caps. Welcome to your first Total Soccer show. Yeah. Um, we also like to highlight the other stuff that Talisman mm-hmm. Caps produce, especially with the holidays coming up. I would recommend going to their accessories page. They have all kinds of interesting accessories, mm-hmm. um, including uh, the graphic design of um, uh, Perlo, no vino, no party. Perlo with a glass of wine. You can get that design not on a T-shirt or on a cap, but in a reclaimed wood um, box. So it's a piece of art, basically, yeah. you could give to someone as a gift for the holidays. Mm-hmm. And Daryl does like the bright pink as the artwork. I kind of do. It pops. Yeah, yeah. I, I like it the bright pink. It pops against the black and white. Yeah. Um, I, I do enjoy the uh, the minimalist, minimalist wallet these days. I did not think mm-hmm. I would. I have one. I enjoy it quite a bit. It, what does that mean, minimalist wallet? It means like you don't. It, it usually is just like one uh, like one piece. I was about to reach for mine, but that would make me go off mic. But you don't have like the fold. You can't cram as much into it. But as a result, it's a more streamlined thing that does require me to like streamline at least my wallet life. Of like, do I really need this business card from eight years ago that I've already put in my phone and I'm still carrying around for reasons? Do I need this Irish money? <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> I'm not trying to be George Costanza and have some hard candy in my wallet that makes me sit at an angle. <laughs> We've also talked before about how much we both love the look of the Campfire Mug, mm-hmm. the support local football Campfire Mug in what I'm going to call mint green. Yeah. Maybe teal. 
Uh, it's a nice color. Metallic mint green is what I'm going to call that metallic one. Metallic mint green. That's from my cousin Vinny. <laughs> <laughs> what else do you like from the accessories page? I, I mean, you, you just said I'm going to stick with that mug for a moment because those are the mugs that I remember from my childhood. I think <laughs> I remember from like childhood's camping. Is that yeah. like, it's like an enamel mug. Oh, sometimes you would leave Bonaire and go camping. Yes. Yeah. I mean, obviously to our palatial summer palace uh no i am not one of the roys um and yeah and that has uh fond memories for me but then i do like uh i, I do like wood i'm, I'm a I enjoy like making things out of wood. I enjoy trying to like uh, rehabilitate furniture, furniture, and they've done uh, the same here, where you've got different wood products such as rehabilitate the... furniture. Yeah, is that what we do? Yeah, yeah, oh, okay. renovate, restore, whatever you want to go with, or change the entire look of it if you want to go that way. Um, but they've got uh, different different styles of coasters, bottle openers, even flasks. Uh, I like the look of all of those things. All of them having the support local uh, symbol on them. And if you want to get 10% off at talismancaps.com, mm-hmm. use the code TOTALSOCCER10 on any order of $35 or more, and you will get 10% off at talismancaps.com. So thank you very much to Talisman Caps for sponsoring today's episode. Daryl, I should add, because maybe I didn't make this clear, with most tables, they do tend to uh, tear an ACL at some point in their table life, so you got to rehab that as well. I see, yeah, I see. Yeah, I it's, see. it's a tough process. It takes a while. <laughs> so we have four more questions. Oh, boy. Are you ready to get through these? I suppose um, I am. Yeah, we're, we're, we're going long, but let's go long. Um, unlike a Greg Berhalter team, we mm-hmm. are happily going long. Um, Rick and Harry asks, <laughs> why hasn't um, and do you think Berhalter will ever call up a bulldogish defensive midfielder like Russell Knauss. Uh Because you don't describe any of other uh, other midfielders as bulldogish is why he hasn't <laughs> caught up Russell Knauss. Well, maybe like so Danny Williams, but he's been injured. Maybe there's a case for him, someone like that. I would describe Tyler Adams as bulldogish, but he's been mm. injured. I think so. We've already kind of mentioned this earlier. The number six role in the Berhalter system is the passing midfielder. So yep. he goes with a Michael Bradley, a Will Trap, um, a Jackson Yule. That's the real reason, right? Mm. There is no role for um, a bulldogish defensive midfielder um, unless you can also play the eight. Slash ten, mm-hmm. which Russell Kanash, for example, could not. Mm-mm. Right. So I think the only way he does get caught up under Burhalter is if he changes his game significantly. Yeah, uh, he played right back for DC the last time I saw him in the playoffs. You never know. Yeah. Uh, or if the style changes and yeah. it does, then require a bulldogish number six who's going to run around yep. and put out fires. Then maybe that is Russell Kanash. Then we check Gattuso's passport to see if he's got any. I American. think we we make sure Tyler Adams can still do that, and then we have uh, Russell Kanash back him up if need be. <laughs> but yeah, because I think right now, to your point, uh, that number six they're looking for. P- Possession retention, and it seems long diagonals and conducting the <laughs> midfield, not running around. Next question. Certainly not running around if Michael Bradley's there. Connor Rosecki. Mm-hmm. Connor Rosecki asks, should the system be built around the players or the players formed to the system? And worth noting with Greg Berhalter, it's definitely been system first, and then we try and select the players to play mm-hmm. that system, right? So one of the things I have seen starting to gain momentum is the idea that Berhalter is trying to coach the national team as a club. Yeah, and that, Bruce Arena literally said yeah, that. And that didn't make sense to me, not because it's like an, an illogical statement, but just like I didn't quite get what that meant. And I think there are probably a variety of meanings to it. But this question helped me understand it, at least for me, because I think that when it comes to a club, it makes sense to sort of have the players form into your system, that you're yeah. basically coming in with an idea of how I want to play, and you're making certain players fit. You're seeing if this player can. Yeah. If not, then you bring in other players. See Bielsa at Leeds, yeah. right? He's essentially established his system at Leeds by like bringing in players that he thinks work for it, establishing mm-hmm. a team, and it's been somewhat successful. Yeah, but I mean, I mean, Klopp did the same thing at Liverpool and yeah. got rid of the players who couldn't execute a press. <laughs> That's a much better That example. would be one. Guardiola would be the other one. That yeah. like, uh, like, so you, I think you have that luxury at club level. I think the only time you 
really have that luxury at national team level is if you're Brazil or Germany. When you've got the technical ability and talent and the depth of it across the board. So it's essentially when you can just do whatever you want because you've got much. all kinds of players to mm-hmm. choose from. Yes. Yeah. To continue with my amateur soccer analogy, when you are in the top, top, top division and you're playing in a lower division, you can kind of do what you want and uh-huh. it's still probably going to work. Um, with international, I think it makes much more sense to go with system built around the players. Yeah. And then once that is kind of like uh, bedded in and, and everyone is adapted to it, then you can adjust and make sort of little changes as you need to and experiment. But I think it should be about kind of looking at the players, seeing where they are and making your team fit that way. And I'll double down and say that I agree with the US that it's better to have a system that fits the player. So players first and then see what system suits them mm-hmm. when you don't have massive depth of talent to call on right. at the high end, right? I mean, you could, I mean, there are thousands of players that could be called in, but there may be only like a handful that are like really, really high quality. Yeah. So then you, if you, uh, you can't chop and change or mix things up with a different system because it might not suit. You might be down to, for example, a Daniel Lovitz mm-hmm. at left back <laughs> playing left centre back yeah. um, because you've gone down this path with this system. Right. right? So that is a major problem under Berhalter. I st- I'm really interested, though, in the club part of it. The thing of him, like, sending video clips to players mm-hmm. when they're back with their clubs, like being in constant contact with them and continuing the education about the system even when they're not in camp. I'm sort of interested to see... Can this work and does it work? And that's why I'm really interested to let this Berhalter experiment play out and see if it's possible to even make it work. If not, we'll kind of have hard evidence that we should never do this again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, like, but I could also see the downside of that. Like, if you're back with your club and he's sending you an email and you've just done a whole day of training and you've worked with all of the video yeah. and everything, and then you've got another assignment, and then two days later you've got the like, hey, just making sure you saw my email. Like, I don't know. Like, I don't know if that is helpful or if that's more of a like, please oh. confirm receipt. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I, I do think this question gets at like my understanding of Greg Berhalter right now. So if you'll forgive me a momentary, not rant, but just I think Berhalter came in thinking he's got this January camp. He'll get these kind of players who have some familiarity with what he's doing, some who don't, but he'll get them all kind of playing the system roughly as he wanted them to play it. Yeah. And I think he got some people on board. And as I said, those first two games, it looked solid. And I think his idea was, I'll get everybody kind of playing the system, I'll have that group, then once everybody's into it, I can start bringing in other players and kind of making it work. Mm -hmm. And I think that was the plan, and I think it still kind of is. The issue is that we haven't gotten to the point where everybody knows how to play the system. And so now, almost a year in, he is still trying to get everybody to play the system while also experimenting with like other players coming in, and a little bit of, well, McKinney's a 10 here, but he's an 8 here, and uh, Pulisic's a 10 here, but sometimes he's wide. So you're still getting that experimentation, but he still hasn't gotten the kind of foundational level there to allow that experimentation to sort of have the productive result that we would have liked. Yep. So there we go. End of sad story. Oh, okay. Should we move on to the next question? <laughs> Let's do it then, yeah. Um, from Raghav Gupta. Mm-hmm. Um, what are the drawbacks of having a major league soccer coach in charge of the national team? Right. So it's definitely also a leading question with the suggestion that there are drawbacks to having a major league soccer coach in charge of the national team. I mean, team. I would say there's drawbacks to if you're England and you only appoint a coach who has ever managed in England and only in England. And I don't even mean like, like, like I mean, just at club level. That's a problem, too, because I think you want a national team manager who has a variety of experiences and a depth of experiences to be able to adjust on the fly and change things up and not just be stuck to this is my system this is how we're going to play because if that's what you have then your plan b as we've said many times is to do plan a better (laughs) i would take a different approach and say the biggest drawback to having a major league soccer coach is all the complaining from people that's true like every failure of the u.s men's national team for people who are against major league soccer um 
the failure of the US men's national team becomes a failure of MLS. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? It's constantly linked together. And then one thing that I really don't believe in and I, I really get sick of reading is the slightly conspiracy-ish stuff mm-hmm. of there being, oh, 14 of the 23 players he called up are from Major League Soccer. He's doing this to try and just make the league look better. Mm-hmm. I don't believe that that stuff happens at senior national team level. I really believe they pick, for the most part, they pick the 23 best players and it doesn't matter where they come from. It actually just happens that we don't have that many senior players in Europe at this point in time, right? Yeah, I mean, the only thing I would say to that is, like, we heard in the past that there were some times when, like, a player would be included in a squad to maybe help them get a new contract or help them get a new deal. For friendlies. And that was also under Dave Sarikin. So maybe that isn't the case now that Berhalter's there. We don't Uh know. But, But, yeah, I take your point that that is also the case that if you had an MLS coach who called in one MLS player... It's either like, oh, he's being reactionary and not calling in any MLS players, or yeah. it would be like, oh, still calling in MLS players. I literally have never counted how many MLS players are on a roster. Mm-hmm. I just don't care. I'm more interested in thinking about the individual players and yeah. what they bring and who, who can do what. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think also it's, uh, it's an interesting question from Ragav, but also there's a big difference. Um, there's a coach like Berhalter who has coached in mm-hmm. Sweden and MLS, mm-hmm. coach like Bradley who's coached, we mentioned, all around the world, mm-hmm. right? Um, or when it's Bruce Arena first time around, he'd only coached college and MLS. Yeah. So it actually depends what your breadth of experience is, this right, is when you appoint someone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, I think that's a, a very valid point. And then probably the time period that you're coaching in also helps because at that point I can't think of another – American coach when Bruce Arena took over, who was aside, I guess, from Steve Sampson, who had not been doing so well. Yeah. I don't know anybody else who had like a lengthy tenure in a variety of different leagues at that point. Yeah, I mean, yeah, because they didn't even have a launch pad to start with. Exactly. Right? Um, all right, final questions from Jacob Van Cleef. Mm-hmm. Um, Jacob asks If you were Serginho Dest, what would you decide to do? Um, Jacob says, I know as a Dutch American, could have guessed from the name. Um, I've been I've been wondering that, but I'm curious about you guys. So okay. Jacob knows what he would do, but mm-hmm. he didn't. He doesn't tell us. Um, if you were Serginho Dest, what would you decide to do? And it's worth noting he did apparently say he was on some show with Andy Vandermeer mm-hmm. where he said I'm going to make I'm going to let people know my decision this week. Mm-hmm. So we may be finding out about Serginho Dest's Netherlands or US Men's National Team decision this week. If you were Dest, what would you do, Taylor? Um, I will give you the longer explanation for this later. I like to think I would choose the United States. I would choose the Netherlands. Why? Okay. So it, this is my secondary uh, succession reference. The question is, are you Logan Roy or not? Because Logan Roy has the idea of like he doesn't think about the past because the past has no purpose to him. He's always about what comes next, what is the future. Yeah. If you are a person who's always about what comes next, what is the future, the Netherlands is probably the attractive option because you're already in Ajax. You could play for a European club. You could go in the Euros. You'll probably get a move to another European team at some point, And you're kind of moving on with like, Europe in your mindset. If you're a person who looks – at, like, wants the connection to the United States, if you have friends and family, if you raised or, like, lived for a period of time in the U.S. and you want to keep that connection alive, you want to stay rooted to the United States, then I think it makes sense to play for the U.S. I like to think that I would be that person, but I think if I were a teenager playing for Ajax, living in the Netherlands, playing in the Champions League, I might end up just staying where I was. See, I, I would be tempted to choose the U.S., mm-hmm. uh, and I'm not, like, in terms of me supporting the U.S. versus the Netherlands, because you've got a better chance of playing. That's true. I really think there's a much better chance of being the US's uh, first choice right back or winger or left back than there is with the Dutch national team, right? And, yeah, and I also think with that in mind, it's the like allure of the Yankees and the Cowboys and Man United or Real Madrid, more so Real Madrid than Man United, but like you want to be that player who brings them back and cements that legacy. Yeah. There is a decent chance that if you were a very good player for the United States and you play in a World Cup and you move from Ajax to Barcelona or whatever, you are going to be beloved... And 
and enshrined in history, whereas at Ajax, that happened last season. So, like, yeah. it's less of a big deal, I think. Yes, yeah, so you could be a big hero mm-hmm. for the United States. And to me, it doesn't damage your European career because you've already got your European passport, right? Mm-hmm. It's not as if you have to give up on your dream of playing uh, for big teams Very in the Champions true. League mm-hmm. and all that. just means you're going to get extra air miles during the international winter. Yeah, but, like... <laughs> That's perfect. That's what you need. But like I do have – I have Norwegian-American cousins who very much embrace their American heritage and are happy yeah. to come over here as much as they can and want to be here and want to stay connected to the States because it means something to them. So yeah. if it means something to him, then I hope I hope he stays. All right. So he we, has yet to change his Instagram profile as well. So there, right now – There is that. I'm trying hard not to get too obsessed about this. But I'm also um, not being negative about it. A lot of people are just like, oh, we've lost him. Mm-hmm. I really think there's a chance either way. Yeah. We, we just don't know what's going to happen yet. And I don't know if any of the – Stay elect- optimistic, people. I don't know if any Pulisic of the elections got an assist recently, today. He did. And if the elections have, have taught us anything, it's that screaming into the void about a thing that makes you mad. Doesn't really impact that much <laughs> or change that much. It does not. Uh-uh. So instead, just yeah, cheer for Pulisic. All That's right. Fine. Let's see how long we can make this show by adding it. some Total Soccer Show Scouting Network reports to the end of it. Well, I think. Do you that not have the document? Up? Would no, I do. I just want to stretch this out as long as I can. Gray hair gaming oh. scouting Indiana Vasilev. Uh, you said you wanted to make this take forever. I can slow it down. <laughs> um, I'm meeting my wife in forty-ish minutes. So eight. 18-year-old American midfielder for Aston Villa, Indiana Vasilev. Uh, Indiana got on the stat sheet in a 4-1 thumping of the Man United U23s, low-hanging fruit. He scored a superb opener in the 14th minute and then assisted Jacob Ramsey in the 37th for Villa's third goal. This was noticed in the West Midlands. Uh, my friend Paul, who's a Villa fan. This was noticed in the West Midlands. Uh, he took a screenshot <laughs> of the report about Vasilev scoring to sentiment. I want that yeah. to be a website, noticed in the Midlands or not. <laughs> and I feel like some big things would not be. <laughs> The uh, the downside of Brexit, for example. Um, Arthur Halliday is uh, doing the vote. Do, do you guys have like the printing press there yet? I'm not sure. It's on the way. Okay. Arthur Halliday <laughs> is scouting Kobe Hernandez-Foster, 17-year-old American centre-back for the Galaxy Academy. Um, Arthur says, KHF made the US Under-17 squad for the upcoming U-17 World Cup. He did. Despite being a natural left-back, Kobe looks set to start as a ball-playing centre-back next to Nico Carrera. And the general consensus is that he like, he's likely the second highest potential player on the team behind Gio Reyna. However, Kobe has not played for Las Dos since June and has not signed a pro deal with the Galaxy. Mm-hmm. So we're getting like Alex Mendes, Ulysses Yanez mm-hmm. vibes here. Um, Rumours suggest that he's being frozen out because he is a Clyburn client and that he will move to Europe when he turns 18 next summer with Wolfsburg, the reported favourites. Mm-hmm. Sounds familiar. So we'll see what happens there. It does sound familiar. He is the player that I think I am most excited to see play for this U17 team, and that includes Gio Reyna, yeah. just because all I've heard about him, I've only seen very limited footage of Kobe Hernandez-Foster. It seems like he can do left back. He can be a, a lockdown center back. He can play with the ball. I'm excited to see Kobe here. Yeah, but I keep hearing about line-breaking passes and him picking passes out from the back with his left foot. You know I love a left-footed centre-back. Mark Gardberg. Oh, sorry, I did the last scouting report. Get out of here. Trying to steal my Mark Gardberg scouting report. Mark Gardberg scouting Patrick Schick, the 23-year-old Czech striker on loan at RB Leipzig from Roma. Schick finally recovered from an injury that has seen him get very limited time with Leipzig this season. However, he was able to play 60 minutes in the Czech Republic's 2-1 victory over England in Euro qualifying. Didn't hear about that. Did not happen. Shreyas Romani is scouting Dan Axel Zagadou, still only 20-year-old French centre-back for Borussia Dortmund. Zagadou scored for the France under-21s in a 5-0 win over Azerbaijan in a U21 Euro qualifier. This is where the good news ends for Zagadou. Mm-hmm. This season, he has two total appearances for Dortmund, neither of which were starts. Yeah, that means he's going to get an £80 million move to Chelsea this summer. <laughs> uh, Matthew Shea is getting Alessio Romagnoli, the 24-year-old Italian centre-back for AC Milan. When did he turn 24? 
I know, right? So some of these players still seem to never age and are always like 18, and then some of them turn 26 real fast. Turns uh, out time is not linear. Odd. It is a flat circle, in fact. Alessio got his 11th cap and scored his first international goal against Liechtenstein in a Euro qualifier. Italy has, a, uh, has qualified for the 2020 Euros, winning all eight games with a plus 22 goal difference. I'm sure the Sopranos will be happy that Italy have qualified. I just want to work on as many HBO references <laughs> to this show as I possibly can. Not sponsored by HBO, Mm-mm. turns out. That's a big bounce back for Italy, right? To just qualify fast for the 20th yeah. for you for 2020 after the world cup fight. it's like they're playing like a band of brothers <laughs> matthew, matthew shea but not in the pacific is scouting alessio romagnoli we've already done that philip andreani <laughs> is scouting andre green 21 year old english winger on loan at preston from aston villa preston are doing well says philip sitting third in the championship but green is yet to feature for them in the league he was able to enjoy a trip to disneyland paris over the international break so i guess he's got that going for him do you think disneyland paris has a deadwood exhibit Todd Ito, I'm taking this. <laughs> Scouting Takafusa Kubo, 18-year-old Japanese attacker on loan at Mallorca from Real Madrid. Kubo got his first La Liga start for Mallorca in late September, and since then he has featured regularly, usually as a substitute. In that time, he's continued to display his excellent control and tenacious tackling, including for 30 minutes in Mallorca's 1-0 win over Real Madrid. All right, Takafusa Kubo. Yeah. Steve Renard is scouting Yuri Tillemans, a 22-year-old Belgian midfielder for Leicester City. Steve says, in addition to being a key cog in the Leicester machine that currently sits third in the table, Tillemans had a goal and assist for Belgium in their 9-0 demolition of... Oh, San Marino. Um, Steve chose not to send us the link to the highlights because San Marino was so overmatched that it wasn't worth it. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so we can trade like Cuba highlights for yeah. San Marino highlights. That works. Yeah. Uh, Oscar Leong scouting Michael Obafemi, the 19-year-old Irish forward for Southampton. After making his first Premier League appearance in late September and assisting on a goal in a 4-0 League Cup win over Portsmouth, Obafemi got his first start for the Republic of Ireland U21s as they lost 1-0 to Iceland in a U21 Euro qualifier. Deployed on the wing, he appeared to be one of Ireland's best threats and created multiple chances. Final scout report of the day comes from James Porter, scouting Troy Parrott, 17-year-old Irish striker for Tottenham. James says Parrott is earning his nickname as the next Robbie Keane with three goals in two games for Ireland's under-21s. I hope he kissed the badge after everyone. <laughs> a brace in Ireland's 3-1 win over Sweden was highlighted by a near-post blast from inside the box and a cheeky chip of the keeper for Ireland's third goal. He then failed to get on the score sheet for the under-21s 0-0 draw with Italy. Ireland sit atop the Group 1 standings, but have played more games than pretty much everyone else in the mm-hmm. group. There endeth the scouting reports. Indeed. That first strike from, uh, from Parrot was amazing. It was an absolute rip. It was on a The Wire. <laughs> I am considering joining another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> When's the transfer window open? January, right? Got to yeah. wait till January. Uh, thank I, got to, you. I got time to fit in some more. Thank you to everybody mm-hmm. for the scouting reports. Thank you for listening to a very long mm-hmm. Total Soccer show. We will be back on Thursday with a review of tonight's Major League Soccer playoff games and maybe some other stuff, depending on what happens. We might have a guest announcement. You never know. It might take his talents to South Beach. All right, Taylor Rockwell, thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. Right back at you, buddy. Listeners, thank you for listening, and we will talk to you again soon. <laughs>